Welcome to episode number 30 of Off the Shelf. There is no way that I can compromise While I have a chance to speak to the Hello everyone, my name is Rod Bergen and we're delighted to have you with us today on Off the Shelf, a podcast that looks at what it means to be a true follower of Jesus in the context of scripture and the message of William Branham. We've now reached into over a hundred countries with our podcast and I want to welcome you into our conversation. In this episode, we are continuing with part two of our interview with Sylvia Perkins. We hope you enjoy the podcast. When William Brown was here, nobody dared challenge him. That's not the truth. The people that would have challenged him just left and left quietly. Yes, and I knew quite a few that did, especially in 1977. Yeah, but but I'm talking about when William Branham was oh, alive. No. no, when he was alive, yes, you did not dare challenge him. You just went quietly into the sunset. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that that creates a different view Although, of the world. Yeah, go ahead. A lot of people would talk in their home and in their family about all these inconsistencies, but then it would all come back to agreeing that they didn't want to hurt Brother Branham and didn't want to make the message look bad. Yeah, wow. that's that's interesting, and 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 certainly what the view that that I've come to believe. And there were some people in in the early days, 1947. We have uh, a Pentecostal superintendent in Canada who basically said something's wrong here, raised some issues, and uh, people just ignored him and just went on following William Branham. That kind of dissent basically was ignored by his followers. Yes, yes, definitely. So Lee Vale, now speaking of Lee Vale, I mean, he he preached, and I don't know if he preached back then, but certainly we have clear indication that he did not believe Jesus Christ was God. No, he did not. And, and he preached that right from the get-go, or is that something he kind of worked himself into? No, that was something he kind of came along with, I would say, pretty close to the end of the time we were going there. It was not something. He started with the Perugia, and from there he kind of added little extras all the time as he went along that he was getting new revelation. And the people, the people in his church, there was no... They did not believe in salvation per se. You were saved and got the Holy Ghost when you said William Branham was a prophet and you believed him. So the whole concept of Christ dying for your sins, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, accepting that sacrifice and through that sacrifice, one has the life of Jesus Christ, eternal life, through accepting his sacrifice, that completely disappeared. Completely. It was never mentioned because in his mind, Jesus was only a man. So therefore, you know, whatever he did was really not all that important to us today. And that man was a man similar to William Branham, who was filled with the Spirit of God. That's right. Yes. So in those kind of services, did did you still have worship service? I mean, do they still sing about Jesus? or how, how, I'm trying to figure out how that all like works together. You're supposedly well, a Christian church. <laughs> in Lee Vale's church, you did not 
dare say amen or have any kind of praising the Lord or anything else. That was absolutely not allowed, and if someone did it, the deacons took care of them. Wow. It was a pretty dark and cold church. Most of what we sang were very slow songs that were from the Psalms. And that's basically what we sang. The services were horrible. They lasted an hour and a half just the preaching. And it was all you could do to stay awake. Uh, I can imagine. I've heard a few of recordings of his, and that, that was enough for me. <laughs> so you were you were there as a young girl. How old were you when you left Leavale's church? Well, we were married and probably in my 30s. Okay, so you were there, as you said, you were there for for 18 years. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I knew him growing up. And and he was a good friend of William Branham's. Yes, he was, very. Were were you at William Branham's funeral service? I saw him, yes, and it did not not look like a person even in there to me. How many people, where was this funeral service held? Was it held at the Branham Tabernacle? Tabernacle, So there would have, again, only been about... Max 500 people. Probably, although there were a lot outside, I remember. Yeah. I don't remember a real lot, except that when I looked at him, it looked like a wax dummy. Well, he'd been dead for he'd been dead for quite a while, yeah. And that did stick with me. Yeah, that's all I basically remember about it. There were a lot of people, and, you know, that's about it. <laughs> a body that had, had been dead that long is... Uh... They basically keep it that long by freezing it, so it's uh, it, it it ceases to look yeah. particularly like uh, yeah. and you know the person that was there previously. I've I've heard there were a lot of people uh, at the funeral that were expecting a resurrection that day. Do you remember anything of that sort going on? Oh yeah, everybody talked about it. Everybody, okay. I think, had some level of expectation. And every year at Easter, they still, there's a great amount of people that come to Jeffersonville expecting him to come up out of the ground. Yeah, good point. I have started making pages of notes, and I'm actually thinking now I could almost write a book. Absolutely. I was thinking that while you were talking. (laughs) Well, I have so much that I could tell. For instance, you know, the Edmund Way, all that went on with that. I knew Hattie Wright. I knew a lot of things about that situation. When the um, cornerstone of the tabernacle was removed, I was there when nothing was in it, and therefore their cognitive dissonance made them say that the angels must have taken it out. So, Sylvia, you were at the tabernacle when they opened up the cornerstone that was sealed back in 1933 or whenever it was. It was probably in the early 70s. It was before I was married, and a car came around that corner and hit the corner of the church, and they had to take it out to rebuild that corner. And so when they did, they were all... A big ceremony. We were all going to see the um, sheets of the Bible that he put in there with the original prophecies. And So how many people were standing around when that happened? Well, everyone that went there at the time, probably 200 at least. So 200 people are standing around the cornerstone. They're going to remove it. They're going to see this wonderful stuff that's inside. They open it up. What happened? Nothing there at all. There was nothing there. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> And immediately, you know, everyone was a little let down, and immediately 
someone, one of the leadership said, oh, well, that's because the angels took it away. And so, therefore, that's what we were told to believe. The angels took it away. I don't know why the angels would have taken it away, but... (laughs) Okay, if I understand you correct, Sylvia, I mean, everybody knew, supposedly, William Branham referred to these, you know, this book of prophecies that he had. Mm -hmm. And does anybody know what happened to that? I know... There's some people who contacted uh, Voice of God and were told, I think that that it had they'd, be, they'd lost it. I don't know how you lose something that important, but they'd lost it. Now, right after he died, everyone wanted to see them and wanted to see his sermon notes for Trail of the Serpent and so forth. And Billy Paul told us that when he went back to look at his book, every page was empty that the angels had taken all of it away. So he saw the book, but they didn't have anything in it. So William Branham, when he was had this yellow book in front of him, flipping through it, the pages were blank, and he was just faking it? <laughs> well, apparent, according to Billy Paul, the reason they did not have a book and <laughs> they did not have all these things at the time. Now, this was way back years ago. The reason was because they went to look at the book after he died, and the pages were blank, and they believed that the angels had taken it off. However, I don't believe that. I believe they just, there was nothing to it, and Billy Paul just made the story up. But that's just my thoughts. Okay, Edmund Way. Yeah. So he is an individual, for those who might not know, who was supposed to have died in a service William Branham went down, prayed for him. He came back to life. What's your take on that one? Well, it was a very, very hot evening, and the church was packed body to body. At the end of the service, everyone stood up, and all of a sudden, instantly, his wife began screaming. And William Branham walked down there. I didn't hear what he prayed because we were maybe seven or eight aisles away where, you know, he just said it very softly and went back up and everyone started rejoicing. And this was all the space of, at the very most, three minutes. So how you could determine someone died and then came back to life again in three minutes? I didn't understand that at all. And so he probably just, his wife was upset and she... Yeah, he probably passed out from the heat. Yeah, yeah. And when everyone cleared away from around him, when he when William Branham went down there, then he came to again. Yeah, that's that's probably the easiest, uh, the most likely explanation. And things like uh, Hattie Wright. Did you know Hattie Wright? Yes, I knew her personally. They were very, very sweet. She was a very, very poor woman. And she would never talk about the case of her son's getting given their salvation. Never. She just refused to if talk about it. If you tried to even come close to it, she would back away and wouldn't talk about it. She, Her mother and dad, I knew, knew them, and they had that daughter that was severely disabled, Edith, and her mother used to cry and say to me, I just don't know why our little Edith never got healed, because they were very ardent followers. And Hattie Wright's sons may very well have gotten saved, but 
by message standards, they certainly did not follow the message. I, we've, we've looked at the story of Arvel Mosier. I don't know if that's how you say it. He was Hattie, one of Hattie Wright's sons. Yes, yes. Did, did you know him? I knew him. I knew the girl he married. And I knew her family. Yeah, and he died in uh, 2014. He basically... Yeah, several years ago. When Arvel retold the story, he just said, you know, that, that William Branham told Mother to ask for anything. Do you want anything in the world? I can remember her saying that she wanted the salvation of her boys. Later, we were baptized in the tabernacle. I was 15 years old. There's nothing yeah. remarkable in what he told of the story. No, there was nothing remarkable at all about it. There were so many other things, you know, like, for instance, Armin Neville. Now, um, we considered him our pastor after William Branham died for quite a few years. And um, he was put out of the church right shortly after William Branham died when um, Billy Paul was voted in as pastor. And Billy Paul wasn't supposed to be a pastor, right? No, and I believe, now this is just my belief, that he was voted out because he was not Branhamite enough to suit the Branham family and the rest of the leadership. I have a whole, <laughs> upstairs I have a whole cabinet full of his reel-to-reel tapes that belong to my mother and dad. And I'm keeping them hoping someday I'll get a reel-to-reel recorder and can actually hear exactly what he preached. He had home prayer meetings and that's where most of them were preached. Interesting. So any other wild stories that you have? I wouldn't say wild well. stories, but for us, this, <laughs> this kind of stuff, like, the, the, like, like opening, the, uh, opening the cornerstone of Branham Tabernacle and there'd be nothing there. That, to me, is just like, really? There's nothing there. Yeah. And they have to cover it up by saying the, 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 the angel must have taken them. The angel must have removed everything from the page. This angel works a lot of, uh, of overtime, I think, because he removes anything that would vindicate <laughs> William Branham to be true, which we would think is strange given that everybody says, well, he's a vindicated prophet. So you'd think if he's a vindicated prophet that God would want us to find something that would prove that he was a vindicated prophet. But what the angel seems to be doing is anytime something would appear to vindicate William Branham, the angel takes it away. That was exactly what happened and what I questioned. And of course, people say this, well, that's just to, pr to test the faith of those to see whether you really believe it or not. And it seems like God's out to try to trick people to make it easy to disbelieve so that only the real true followers of William Branham will actually believe because you can't prove anything to be true. So you have to have faith. Which, which, what I find ironic is, is the they grasp at anything that they would call um, vindication. So, if someone comes out with an article in a, in a magazine that appears to fall in line with something that William Bram said, oh, look at this, William Bram said this, you know, sixty years ago or whatever. And so they're always looking, and, and William Bram the same thing. He said this was packed by the news. This was vindicated. This was uh, uh, by the doctor said this is what happened. And so they're always looking for vindication. And yet, vindication, the very definition of it means to remove doubt from a situation to show that something is true and then when the vindication itself is shrouded in controversy it's well you just have to believe it so it's it's completely contradictory you can't have it both ways well it's not, it's not just completely <laughs> contradictory the really good stuff the angel took away 
<laughs> to make sure no one could really, uh, truly prove anything. Yes, isn't that sad? It, it really is. Well, th and that is, that is cognitive dissonance because you can't accept that it's not true, so you must come up with an explanation to justify your continued belief. And the only explanation when there's nothing there is that, well, some supernatural incident like an angel taking everything away must have happened and and that you can kind of rest in that even though it doesn't make any sense but you have to have some explanation yes and i found over the years if you mention anything to someone they immediately come up with some wild and usually strangely supernatural something to vindicate that he was right when he wasn't we're going to end the interview there for this week, but please come back next week for part three of our interview with Sylvia Perkins. If you have any questions, please leave them for us on the website at offtheshelf.life or send an email to Brian, spelled with a Y, at offtheshelf.life or to me at rod at offtheshelf.life. Thanks for joining us. Have a great week. I must tell What to believe While others are Being deceived I must tell The truth Gangsayers Must be convinced That living for Jesus Is going to win I must tell The truth I may not say what you want to hear, but I can't console those itching ears. I must tell the truth and all that.